This morning, we are going to be working our way through the book of Jonah. It is four short chapters. If I were to set out to read it to you, and keep in mind I read at a rather rapid pace, we would make it through it about 10 minutes. I listened to it this morning on my drive-in, and it took about 12, 12 and a half minutes to listen to the whole book with long pauses in between each chapter. I've got an app on my phone that reads to me. I was just curious. You know, as we, as we turned to Jonah, I started thinking about kind of all the things that, that Jonah communicates, and we're not going to look at all of those. We're going to make our way through the letter. But I started kind of thinking, where do I see myself in, in the letter of Jonah? And I thought back to not long after Valerie and I got married, we are living in Houston, we're prepping to move up to Fort Worth. I had already started at the seminary in Houston. I was working for, for her stepdad at the time. And, and he came along, and right before we left, and he is, he's doing well for himself. There's, there's not many days where he's doing without. And so he comes to me and he starts laying all this stuff before me, talking about, you know, I really, if I could find the right person to turn this over to. And I'm looking around like, I wonder where he's at. I wonder where he's at. And he's like, you know, a, a young man could do well in this business. And I'm thinking, young man, where is he at? And he's like, you know, I know that you feel the call of God to go and to do these things, but you've worked for me for these past few months and I just... You've got what it takes to do this. You've seen my house. You've seen my things. You've got what it takes to succeed in this industry. You've got what it takes to get these things. And so, and I know I've shared this before with y'all that when I first went to college, I wanted to be a dentist, and I wanted to be a dentist not because I like teeth. I wanted to be a dentist because I like things, right? I wanted nice things. I knew dentists that had nice things. I wanted their nice things to be my nice things. I didn't covet their things. I wanted my own things, not their things that I could borrow. You got it. And so here I am facing the same struggle all over again. I, 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 I'm, I, I know what it is to suffer at this point in our marriage. We're, we, we far got more expenses than we do income coming in. I'm not a mechanic. I'm a mechanic's assistant. And so basically my job is to get cussed at and, and to dodge tools, right? That's my job. I remember that one of the guys I worked with, he would ask me to clean his stall. He's like, not Cinderella cleaning. Like, you know, don't whistle and just kind of clean around things. Like, deep clean, get under stuff. I'm like, dude, everything's dirty. He's like, yes, I want it clean. So, but here I am again at, at this point recognizing all the things that this guy has that would be nice to have in my life. Money's not bad. Money is, is amoral, not immoral. It can be used for moral and immoral purposes, but, but by and of itself, it's, it's amoral. It doesn't have inherent good or inherent bad. But money's the temptation. Money's the thing laid before me. And so the choice before me is to be obedient to the call of God and to go forth, not really knowing what that's going to look like, or to stay where I was, to stay where I was comfortable and have almost certain success in financial blessing. Every one of us, God comes to you, he issues a call, and he says to you, go out. Get out of your comfort zone. Go and, and follow me, give yourself to me. Your life is a blank check before me. But we sit there and we think, to what degree do I want to follow? 
as we look at the story of Jonah, what we find is, is a prophet that we can totally identify with, right? Some of us, we identify with the early kind of stumblings of, of Moses, a man kicked out of his land, a man that when he embraced God and God came to him, he, oh, but it, but it, but it, you know, he stutters and he's coming up with reasons why he can't go. But for most of us, the vision we have of Moses is the one emblazoned in our mind by Charlton Heston that he's walking down from the mountain. He's got these giant stone that the, that the word of God has been written on. We say that and we're like, whoa, I can't be that. I can't be that bull. I like the stutterer, but the other guy, he's just intense. But we come to the story of Jonah and we see before us somebody that we readily identify with. Look here when Jonah opens up. It says in verse one, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it, for evil has come up before me. And, and so we see Jonah's charge. We get that. It's simple. It's not you know, pages and pages and pages of all before him, but God simply comes to Jonah and in some way speaks to him, communicates to him, and says, Jonah, get up and go. Gives him a concrete city, a concrete people, a concrete commission to follow. So Jonah hears it, he takes it in, and we don't see any hesitation in the text. We don't see any hesitation in the text. In fact, we see that Jonah rose up and he went, friends, completely the opposite direction. Now, he is, he is given a task of heading some 500 miles, some five to six week journey, depending on which way he went, to the, to the east. But instead, he goes to the south and to the west to the 1,000, to the 2,000 mile mark. I mean, he is headed in a completely opposite direction. And, and it's not enough for him simply to walk in an opposite direction, but he is going to, as many of us know in this story, he's gonna hire a boat. He wants to get out of Dodge as quickly as possible. God has, has come to Jonah. He's giving him a, a word to follow. He's giving him instructions to live by. And Jonah says, okay, God, yeah, I got that. He jumps up, man, he heads the other direction post haste. Now, why did God want Jonah to go to the Ninevites? Man, people have spilled all kinds of ink over this. They've, they've thought about all kinds of, of reasons and rationale for, you know, maybe why Jonah didn't want to go. And, and so they talk about how awful the Ninevites were. You know, I did some reading this week, and the Ninevites were people that if they were going to take somebody hostage, they'd, they'd take them in, and they would actually rip their lips off. I had an uncle that threatened to do that to me all the time as a child. I'm pretty sure he was joking. But, but it, it put terror in me. But for people that would actually do this, they would take men and women and they would skin them alive. They're not people you want to spend Christmas with. But, but these really have nothing to do with the reasons, and we'll find this out, as to why Jonah didn't want to go. In fact, Jonah gets up. He heads in the opposite direction. And we have good grounds for understanding in verse 3 that this fare he paid, he bought the entire boat out. It's Jonah and a crew. Jonah likely had to turn over his house. He likely had to turn over a significant amount of monetary positions. He wanted to get to a place where God could not use him. See, some read this and they take it too literally and where it says that, that Jonah went and he wanted to, to get away from the presence of God and they say that God's presence is localized to an individual place to an individual people. We read Psalm 139 and we recognize that this is absolutely not true, that God is omnipresent, that he is in all places at all times around all people. 
This is what Jonah wanted to do. He wanted to set out on a course of action and behavior that would completely disqualify him from being able to be used by God. Do you see that in your life? Do you see yourself setting up and doing some of these things? That, that when the church goes to you and say, look, we want to raise $50,000 for international missions, you look at your own life and you've completely disqualified yourself from being able to give because you are leveraged in debt. You drive two cars that, 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 that somebody else owns and you're paying into them. You've got a house, you've got a vacation house, you've got a boat, you've got all these trips planned, but you are, friend, you are leveraged in debt. You couldn't possibly give if God came to you and said to give because you are so drowning in debt pursuing this American dream. Jonah's doing effectively the same thing. He's seeking to find the one thing he can do to remove him from being able to be used by God and he sets out about it with all his heart and intensity. He heads in completely the wrong direction. And he takes to the water, which is something, if you know very much about the Old Testament, is not something you found the Jews doing very often. They had a, a, a distaste, a distrust for all things in the water and the sea. But he takes to the water to avoid God. And so what we find in verse 4 is that, that Jonah gets out and he's on this boat and we see the Lord respond to the disobedience of Jonah. It tells us that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So this is what happens. Jonah gets out on the boat and God responds to Jonah's disobedience. He is still pursuing Jonah. He sends the wind. The ship is tossing back and forth, back and forth. The sailors, who this is what they do, these Phoenicians, this is what they do for a living. And they think that this whole thing is about to break up. They think they're all about to die. The mariners were afraid, verse 5. They cried to each other, into each other's God, and they hurled the cargo. What are they entrusted to do? One is transport Jonah. Two is to take all the stuff on the boat and, and get it safely to its destination. Like this is the dire situation these guys are in. You can imagine when the water first starts picking up and getting a little rough, they start looking for the lightest sailor. They start looking for the person that doesn't pull his weight and they're like, we could throw this stuff away, but this is what we get paid for. Or we could throw Joe away. Nobody's gonna miss him. Somebody says his mom might. We're like, no, no, she died last week. It's okay. And so they start throwing all the cargo overboard. They're trying to lighten the ship. And where do we find Jonah in the midst of all of this? This person who recognizes he's running away. He is a prophet of God. He recognizes God is everywhere. God is in control of all things. Jonah is sound, stinking asleep. Jonah is sound asleep. He's down in the boat. He's oblivious to all that's going on. He has no idea that this thing's about to, to fall up. You know, sometimes people say that a good conscience helps you to sleep well. This is proof that that's not true. Liars and thieves and people running from God, they can sleep perfectly, as Jonah demonstrates here. So he's down in the boat sleeping. The captain goes to him in verse 6 and says, What do you mean, you sleeper? The captain goes in and his question is, how ridiculous is this? How can you find yourself to be sleeping? What do you think you're doing down there? And he commissions him. He says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, perhaps the God will give a, uh, give a thought to us that we may not perish. This heathen sea captain gets it. He gets it. 
He recognizes there's no amount of cargo tossed overboard. There's no amount of of things they can do. They need intervention that they can't provide. So they bring Jonah up above and and they cast lots. They they throw out lots and, and the lot falls to Jonah. So they turn to him and say, tell us why this is happening. Tell us why this catastrophe has has landed here. Tell us who you are, what you do, what you're doing on this boat. All of a sudden, the fare that he's paid isn't the most important thing for them. What they want to know is the backstory to who this guy is. And Jonah gives an amazing response. See, some people are tempted to say, well, you know, Jonah just got God wrong. Like, he didn't get exactly who God was. It's, just, it's, it's really more of a story of misunderstanding, Matt, that God came to Jonah. He said, Jonah, rise and go. And Jonah somewhere got it bobbled. And he's like, yeah, but I get to go to Tarshish first. I'm going to hang out on the beaches of Spain. And then I'm going to make my way down to Nineveh. God's not going to act until I get there. No, Jonah gets exactly who God is. Look here in verse 9. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven. He localizes God. He says, this God is over all things. He's heard the other sailors calling out about who their God is and where he is. He said, I fear the Lord God of heaven. And he made the sea and the dry land. Jonah tells them that the God he serves is the God who is in control of everything going on around them. All the devastation, all the despair, all the soon-to-be or presumed destruction, that he serves that God. And so the men hear it, they're they're terrified, they're scared out of their minds, they turn to Jonah and they say, what have you done? What have you done? Why Why is this happening to us? Why is this happening to us? What exactly have you done? And we find out that they recognized, they knew that Jonah was moving away from the presence of the Lord, but it seems that they did not grasp, grasp the severity of his actions, of his behavior. And so they go to Jonah and they say, Jonah, tell us, tell us what we can do. Tell us how to set this thing straight. Tell us how to, to take care of this. And so Jonah goes to them and he says, look, this is going to sound strange to you. Take me, throw me overboard. Everything's going to be fine. Take me, throw me overboard, and all your problems are going to be okay. Now, I'm not a sailor from the 8th century, right? That's pretty clear to most of you. Some of you are like, Honey, did you hear what he said? He's not a sailor from the 8th century. You should, we should talk. And so Jonah goes to them and he has this idea. He says, throw me overboard. And the sailors hear it and they think, he has lost his mind. He has absolutely lost his mind. Not only is he trying to escape this God who's done all this stuff, now he wants us to feed him to that God. This is crazy. We don't want to make that God any more angry, any more upset than he already is. And so they begin to row. They're struggling against the water. They're struggling with their oars. They're trying as hard as they can to struggle to the, to the shore. They want to get Jonah back to where he belongs, and they want to deposit him back on the land and effectively say, you know, I didn't really like him. We tried him out for a little while. We're just returning him to you. That's fun. We're just returning him to you. The harder they try, the worse it gets. So they're instantly faced with a decision. What they have to do is they turn to this God who they haven't known outside of Jonah's explanation. And they turn to this God and they say, look, we're going to do what your servant has told us to do. But we don't want blood on our hands effectively. They say, oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. 
And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they pick Jonah up, they toss him in the water, everything dies down, it is perfectly calm. Everything dies down, it is perfectly calm. Now, what happens next is what most people know about Jonah. Suspend that from your mind. We're going to get to it, we're going to talk about the fish gobbling him up. And it's going to conjure a picture in your mind that I want you to obliterate, to put on an island, and then drop a bomb on that island and destroy it. I don't want you to ever think about it again, okay? This is what we read. The Lord appointed a great fish that swallowed Jonah up, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, instantly, a lot of you had this heretical thought in your mind, and I know exactly where it came from. It's Disney. Now, this is what you have in your mind. You've got this giant fish... You see this little wooden creature, you've taken him out, you put a bearded man in there. He's in there, there's water at his feet, he's got a little bitty candle, and he's tossing and turning, and he's bemoaning all this stuff, and he's got this soliloquy that comes out, and that's what's recorded for us here in chapter two. Put it out of your mind. You can put the little wooden boy back in there, you can watch it this afternoon. What this likely is, Jonah is, is taken up by this great fish, but he is squished, he is crushed, he is uncomfortable he's not sitting on a little piece of wood watching scraps or bottles come in he is uncomfortable he is contorted likely he's either in a fetal position or completely constricted and crushed down and he is in that discomfort for three days and three nights as this fish swam around that's what should be in your mind more of us some of us are more familiar with the story of Pinocchio than we are of the story of Jonah. So put Pinocchio out of your mind and establish what this likely looks like. For three days and three nights, this fish swam around. It, it, it went down to the depths. It came back up closer to the shore. And then after three days, Jonah begins to develop this prayer. And he's praying out of the belly of the fish. And he sees this as the prime distress of his life. And so he's bemoaning the fact that he sank to the depths that God rescued him in those depths, but he misses it. We see, we start to think that Jonah picks up on it. Look here at the end of verse nine. Jonah writes the end of verse nine. He says, but with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And you think Jonah gets it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, what Jonah has been called to do is to go to the Ninevites to give a word of warning so that they might turn from their ways. So in some sense, we read this and we say, okay, Jonah gets it. Jonah gets it. But what do we simply read in verse 10? It says, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out up onto the dry land. Jonah's got this prayer. He's in the fish for three days. What we see here is just in chapter two, a small segment of likely what he thought and endured. God directs this fish to come back around and to spit him out, to vomit him, to regurgitate him. They go, what? And Jonah pops out onto dry land. He stinks like fish. And now Jonah likely has still this five-week trek to get him to Nineveh. Jonah sought to avoid God. He sought to disobey God, to remove himself, disqualify himself so God would use someone else. God has gone to extraordinary lengths to send wind and waves on the sea to convince heathens that he is a true God to throw Jonah overboard. 
he commissioned a fish to carry Jonah in this water taxi for three days and then to spit him back up on the land. God is going to extraordinary lengths to get this message to Nineveh. So Jonah sets out walking. and He's got this five to six week trek and he makes his way all the way to Nineveh. And what we read is that God again has told him that he's to go there and to cry out against that great city. So Jonah goes there, and now look what we read here in verse 3. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Nineveh was a sprawling metropolis in, in, in our understanding. It was roughly four times the size of Greenville. Imagine if you set out and you were going to walk all the highways and byways of Greenville, and you were given three days to do it. That's That's pressing. That's an incredible journey that you're about to set out on. But look also that for the three days that Jonah is in the fish, for three days he'll also cry out. For three days he endured the chastisement of the Lord, and now for three days he'll work as a servant of the Lord. There's a direct proportion there. There's a parallel between his suffering and now his commission to go and finally to serve God. So Jonah gets out there and he begins to go into the city and he goes a day's journey into the city we read. Now, something we know from archaeology is that Nineveh at this time, they received so many different prophecies that they had men in the city that their task, their job, was to hear prophecies brought against the city. Now, what we also know from from archaeological evidence is that they had had an eclipse, a famine, and a flood not long before Jonah showed up. God had been moving and using the elements. He had been moving and using his creation to prepare the hearts of the Ninevites to hear this message. They were looking around them and thinking, why are all these things happening to us? Now, Jonah shows up. He meets with the men of the city. He says, this is the word I'm bringing. They say, okay, go and share it. So he begins to walk through the city. He begins to share with them, and this is his simple message. And it's actually only five words in Hebrew. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Imagine if somebody walked up Wesley Street. You got somebody walking up Wesley Street, they've got a megaphone, and they say, in 40 days, Greenville's going to come crushing down. We'd have them arrested, we'd have them committed, we'd have them thrown in jail, and we would likely supervise them and watch them for the duration of that 40 days. We'd look at their background, we'd look at their friends, we'd look on their Facebook, their Twitter feed, we'd look for blogs they might have. Why do they hate Greenville so much? These people hear the word of the Lord coming from the prophet, and they respond. Simply, they hear the word of the Lord, and they respond. Look here in verse 5 of chapter 3, it says, The people of Nineveh believed God. They took Jonah at his word. They took simply God at his word. And they call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. We see a city-wide, an area-wide fast. They're trying to avert, they're trying to avoid the punishment of the Lord being visited upon them. They put stock in what it says. We read in verse 6 that the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh. Read this here, verse 7. 
It says, by the decree of the king, the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. For what purpose? Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows, verse nine, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. The king looks out from his abode. He looks out from his home. The message finally makes it up to him. And instead of looking at it and hearing and saying, you know what, I'm above all these people. I direct them and they do, but nobody tells me what to do. I command and they obey. Nobody, nobody tells me what to do. He takes it even further. He wants every man, woman, and child to fast. He wants everybody covered, even down to their animals, covered in sackcloth, so that this devastation and destruction might not come to this great city. How does God respond? You see, we see the response of God here in verse 10. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster, and he did not do it. Now, there's good reason for us to see that Jonah did not hear this. And so Jonah observes what the people do. He sees the people receive that word. He sees them throw on the sackcloth, heap on the ashes, start fasting. And he's got a really interesting response. Verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah begrudgingly was obedient. So we get to the end of the chapter two and we read that Jonah says, and salvation belongs to the Lord. And we say, I think he gets it. But we get to the first part of chapter four and we recognize that Jonah, although he was obedient, his heart completely invalidates his actions. He was angry. He saw people put on sackcloth. He saw them be dismayed at the word of the Lord going out, that they recognized that they were in opposition to the God of the heavens, and he sees them respond appropriately, what God would want, and it ticks him off. He is so frustrated, so angry. Look here, verse 2, it says, He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to angry, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Like he says those things and he's angry about it. I mean, this is, this is part of how we share the gospel with people. When you're out and you're talking to somebody and you say, Harry, let me tell you, there's a God and he is slow to anger. He's abounding with grace and thanksgiving for you. And you say, that's great. And I say, no, man, I'm ticked off. I hate that that's going to come to you. Not really, Harry. We'll talk later. He's angry. He's so frustrated that this is the case, that this is the outcome. God asks a simple question. Look here in verse 3. It says, Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah sees the repentance or what's headed towards repentance for these people, and he wants to die. That's how dismayed, that's how frustrated he is that they're heading in this direction. God asks a simple question in response to Jonah's words. He says, do you do well to be angry? 
In a sense, he's asking him, what does your frustration and your anger produce? Do you do well to be angry? Well, we don't see a response from Jonah. Maybe he's beginning to learn. We don't see a response from him. Instead, Jonah goes out and he looks out over the city. Look here in verse 5. He sat to the east of the city. He made a booth for himself there and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Jonah goes out and he constructs a little lean-to. He makes a little temporary shelter for himself. He plops down and he's just watching. He's just watching. I'm not a deer hunter, but I understand there's a lot of watching that takes place in deer hunting. Right? It just seems very boring to me. Like 30 seconds of real excitement and then a whole lot of work after that 30 seconds. But Jonah gets there and he is watching and he is waiting. In some sense, he's hoping. He wants to see what's going to come of this city. In Jonah's heart, he wants to see how the people will continue to respond to what God has said. So he sat under the shade. Look what God does in verse 6. God appoints a plant and made it come up and cover Jonah. God is extending compassion to Jonah. That Assyrian sun where Nineveh was located was extremely hot. And God makes a plant grow and its branches spread and this leaf covers and it shades Jonah. And it shades him. And look at Jonah's response. You see here at the end of verse 6. It says, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Friends, Jonah just preached a message of hope for 120,000 people and everybody got it. And what happened? He was angry. Jonah received direct revelation from God in the beginning of this book in a direct, very precise, very specific thing to do. Not some, some kind of out there ethereal, you know, I want you to go, I want you to serve me. You're like, what does that look like? God's like, well, you know, we'll figure that out. We're just going to walk with it. Jonah got like the bullet point message. Crystal clear communication. There was no doubt for him. Everything should have been going his way. And he was angry. People repent and he's angry. But all of a sudden a plant grows up. He's got shade. And the text tells us this ridiculous thing about Jonah. It says he was exceedingly glad. Jonah is dancing because of a plant. He sees his plant grow up. He's like, he's looking for somebody to tell. Did you see my plant? This thing's awesome. Did you see this thing? This is, amazing. this is the best plant I've ever seen in my entire life. This thing's amazing. It covers me. There's no discomfort here. This is what Jonah's doing. He's exceedingly glad because of a plant. Hmm. Verse 7. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind so that the sun beat down on the head of Jonah until he was faint. (coughs) God brought the plant. God destroyed the plant. This is Jonah's response. It is better that I die than to live. It is better that I die instead of live. And God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Now earlier, Jonah leaves Nineveh. 
He is angry and frustrated. He tells God, look, I knew you were gracious. I knew you were kind. I knew you were loving and forgiving. I knew you would relent, and that makes me angry. And God poses the question to him. He says, do you do well to be angry? Jonah doesn't respond. Jonah goes up on the hill. He sets out to watch. He builds a booth. A plant grows up. It's covering him. He's exceedingly happy. He can't remember ever being this happy before in his life, and it dies, and he is so frustrated, he wants God to take his life. God poses the question to him again. Do you do well to be angry? God is still seeking to teach Jonah. Jonah still doesn't get it. This is Jonah's response for him. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And God shows Jonah the hardness of his heart. God shows Jonah the hardness of his heart. He says, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor nor make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is what God does. He takes this unloving, uncaring prophet to a people that he clearly doesn't care for to communicate a message that could radically alter their lives, could change the, the coming destruction for them. And Jonah goes and he, he tells the message and God relents and the city is saved. But Jonah's heart is angry. Jonah didn't want to see the blessing of God come upon a people he thought were completely undeserving. Were completely undeserving. You see, there's this tremendous parallel that shows the the, the remarkable disparity between Jesus and Jonah. Both men from the region of Galilee. Both men given this distinct word of God. Jesus as the word of God. Jonah given a message from God. Jonah completely disobedient. Completely disobedient. We read about in Philippians 2.8 that Jesus was obedient, obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jonah was angry. Angry that God called him in the first place. Angry that God gobbled him up with a fish. Angry that God didn't spit him out on the ground a little bit closer to the city. Angry at the result of his preaching. He was angry. You know what we read about Jesus? We read about Jesus in Hebrews 12, 2, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So we see anger on the part of Jonah. We see joy on the part of Jesus. And what we see in Jonah is a sense of selfishness. But what we see in Jesus in 1 John 2, 2, is the ultimate sacrifice. Jonah was selfish. He wanted this message to be for him and his countrymen and not to be extended to these people over here that he did not deem worthy. Jesus recognized that none of us is worthy of the gospel, that only he himself is worthy. So he came and he surrendered his life. And 1 John 2 2 tells us that he received the wrath of God as he is the propitiation of God. He's our covering for the wrath of God. So this is the question that goes out, and this is the question I've been struggling with this week. 
Jonah gives us a picture of what it is to receive the word of the Lord and to do everything we can to be disobedient to it. God steered and directed and forced Jonah to go do this. And Christ did so willingly, voluntarily, sacrificially. This is the question we struggle with. See, some of you look and you say, Matt, you know, I'll tell you what, if God comes to me, God comes to me, one, I'm going to be terrified, probably die. But if I don't die, if I get over being terrified, God comes to me and he tells me, Jason, Kelsey, Carol B, go. Chase, Lydia, go. Laura, go. Joe, Chrissy, go. If he says my name and tells me to go, I will be completely obedient and I will be exceedingly glad to do it. Man, I don't care if he comes in and tells me to go and and, and to visit murderers on death row, somebody that robbed, that beat my family. I don't care if he tells me to go to my ex-wife, to my family that that I'm separated from. I don't care if he tells me to go to people that I completely hate, completely abhor, and don't think are worthy. If he comes and tells me to go, I will go. And that's where you said it. You think that if God comes to you and he calls out your name and says, friend, go, that you're going to be obedient. It's not true. Because he's already done it. Jesus, meeting with the disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, comes to them. And he shows them that his heartbeat is that everyone may hear, that everyone may know. And he commissions them to go. And that same thing applies to us. The thing you're waiting on, the word you're waiting to hear, you've already got it. It's already there for you. He's already waiting on you to be obedient. What is he calling you to do? How is he expecting you to be obedient to the grace he has entrusted you with in your life? That's the question before us. It's the one I can't answer for you. That's the, only, that's the one that each and every one of us have to answer individually. But as a church, Tell you what, I would love it if week after week I came in here to an empty auditorium because our people are not here. They're out reaching the nations. And so we are struggling to get people here on Sunday mornings because we keep sending so many people abroad. How do you answer the question? Let me pray for us. 